baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley and Nick Green. Hello again and welcome back to From the Diamond. I am Grant McCauley, joined as always by Nick Green for another exciting week of baseball talk, both the major league variety and, of course, in particular, Atlanta Braves baseball and a lot of stuff to talk about on this week's show. But before we jump into it all, I want to welcome in Nick Green for what I'm hoping will be kind of a fun discussion about at least one topic we've been looking forward to for quite a while, and that's not just the arrival of Josh Donaldson, but seeing this guy playing a baseball game. So we'll get to talk about that. But first and foremost, how are things going and how's your week been? It's better now. We have a Josh Donaldson sighting. Yes. Uh, Braves are playing baseball. Um, I'm excited. I get to watch baseball every day, at least uh, to some extent. Wish the Braves were on more often, but I couldn't be more excited this time of year. Yeah, you kind of have to take what you can get. It's very spotty when it comes to trying to watch all the games of one team. I don't know too many teams that really are totally committed to that, but it would be lovely to be able to see that. MLB TV is pretty helpful. And then, of course, Major League Baseball Network does throw on some games that, even if they're on tape delay, maybe you get to get your eyes on your favorite team or some other teams that you're interested in. So that kind of thing is fun. And I'm like you. I'm, I'm just glad baseball's back on TV. And if I'm sitting around at, at the house and I've got some other things I'm doing, if I'm researching or writing an article or doing whatever it is, I can throw a baseball game on in the background and kind of feel like a sane person again because it's just back in my life. <laughs> Absolutely. I've, I've been watching games when the kids go to sleep until my wife wants to watch Dateline. But ah. Uh, at least I get a little bit of baseball fix. I've seen Tim Tebow hit three times. Really? So that's been fun. I take it you were I, I, totally I, you know, I'm rooting for him, man. Yep. I really am rooting for him. It's a tough journey, but he's such a good guy. I think he's good for baseball. It'll be interesting to see if he continues that rise where it's not necessarily all the talent, obviously. There's a lot of marketing and, and things that come with Tim Tebow, some appeal that most, what, 29, 30-year-old players who are in a second career don't typically get maybe the Mets will want to tap into that. I, mean, I know he's sold some jerseys and I know he's a likable guy. And I know that there's a lot of people that are interested in this story. I just kind of wondered how exactly was this going to end and how long was he going to stick with it? But you know, to his credit, he's sticking around. He's continuing to try to do whatever he can to get those opportunities. So that's, uh, that's good on him, but not going to be too much Tim Tebow on this week's show. In fact, that will wrap up the Tim Tebow <laughs> discussion, but you can subscribe to the podcast for so many other things, including all the Braves talk that we do. And you can keep up with everything from the Diamond on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter as well. At from the Diamond underscore is where you can find the show. I am at Grant McCauley, and Nick is at Nick Green Twenty. And everything, of course, we talk about on the show and in the articles and all the extra stuff. You can find that at fromthediamond.com. We appreciate your patronage there, and of course, if you do subscribe to the podcast, we always love those reviews. So keep those coming in. We really appreciate those and all the follows and the likes and the comments and the questions and all those good things are always appreciated here from the Diamond. So let's kick this thing off and get started with our Braves spring training news. I'm not going to bury the lead here. Josh Donaldson makes his debut. It happened on Friday night as the Atlanta Braves played under the lights for the first time this spring. Donaldson at third base. He hit twice, had a walk, also popped out, but 
healthy, spent three innings in the field. Nice just to get his feet wet, I'm sure, Nick, and he batted second. I know that's something everybody's looking to see, kind of how this lineup's going to come together. But before we get to that whole thing, you know, I, I think it's just good to see Josh out there. I know they kind of slow played this thing and took it really easy with him, but I want this guy out there as many times as possible when these games actually count. I don't know about you. Yeah, I want to see him out there a lot. And uh, we've already talked about and we've heard Snickers say that these guys aren't going to go on road trips, but he's going to get his at-bats. He's going to do whatever it takes to be ready opening day. And what the interesting part to me is the fact that the Braves took it so slow yep. and he had a healthy spring. And going into spring training, you knew he was supposedly healthy, but by them taking it slow, it was like, wow, they had a plan from day one trying to keep him healthy throughout the spring. And it seems that he is healthy and that's a good sign. I'm excited to see him swing the bat. I know a couple of days ago it was hilarious because they had the whole sim game thing, and I go to watch the sim game on Twitter, and it's the coach pitching from 30 feet away. Yeah, uh, and I saw a couple of foul balls, and it was interesting. But you know what? I think he was three for three in the sim game, and you still have to put the barrel of the bat on the ball, even when a coach is pitching from 30 feet and throwing hard. Yep. So he wanted some sort of game like situation and some sort of intensity and you could see by the swings that he's taking every single swing seriously right he has a plan every time he steps in that box and every time he swings the bat and that's good to see so to see him finally get out on the field and real game action was pretty fun absolutely and that's a big thing that the Braves been looking forward to is the opportunity to put together not just Josh Donaldson but all of their regulars which is something that they were able to do by playing the Phillies on this particular night game and so if you take a look at this lineup, if you're curious, and this obviously is where we were wondering how Brian Snitker was going to go, I think this thing can change a lot based on how players are doing, performance, that's clearly important, but also righty-lefty matchups and different platoon splits that might be reasons that Ronald Acuna would be hitting leadoff as opposed to, say, Ender Inciarte. Or you could just kind of go with the prevailing thought, which was why change something if it works so well? Why not just bat Ronald Acuna first? Josh Donaldson second, Freddie Freeman third, and, and just go that route. And you and I have talked about that quite a bit uh, since the be- very beginning of our kind of podcast endeavor here. But on this night, it was Ender Inciarte, Josh Donaldson, Freddie Freeman, Ronald Acuna Jr., then Nick Markakis, Ozzy Albies, Tyler Flowers, and Dansby Swanson. Of course, the Braves used the DH, but the pitcher spot would be ninth. But Inciarte, Donaldson, Freeman, Acuna, Markakis, Albies, Flowers, Swanson, then the pitcher spot. That's something that looks like, you know, with Flowers and McCann kind of being interchangeable, that looks an awful lot like what could be your opening day lineup. And if so, are you pleased with that? Do you feel like there's reason to explore Ender Inciarte at the top of the order? Or are you kind of in that camp that I mentioned where, man, Ronald Acuna Jr. was so electric at the top of the order. Why do you want to change that? I'm still Acuna at the top of the order guy, but I, I'm not the one making the decisions. I right, knew this was right. probably going to happen. And we still have three weeks to go before it's set in stone or whatever. And it's probably not going to be set in stone mm-hmm. for the entire year. I think you're going to see some changes. I think you're going to see the lineup change depending on if they face a righty or a lefty. On opening day, I'm thinking McCann's probably going to start instead of Flowers because yeah. Aaron Nola just got announced uh, as the opening day starter for the Phillies. So I think you're going to see McCann probably slide into the same spot that Flowers is in, which was number seven spot in the order. But I think what we saw – uh, is probably what you're going to see with that lineup with the NCRT Donaldson Freeman top three. Acuna is going to be four. And then Marquegas Albies 
McCann on opening day and then Swanson in the eighth spot. But I, I think that's what you're going to see a lot from this lineup as far as how it's constructed early on in the season. If there's a lefty, I think you might see some changes there. I do like the fact that they're lefty, righty, lefty, righty. Albies a switch hitter, so that's going to change things too. But Albies is so good against lefties. I think he slides up in the order as well against uh, lefties, but I think Ender's going to slide down. You could see an Albies lead off against lefties. I don't know, depending on how Acuna is swinging the bat in the four spot. So that's something that you have to look at as well. But I think Snit's going to mix and match a little bit against lefties. But what we saw uh, today was probably going to be what you're going to see uh, against righties on a consistent basis to start out the season at least. Yeah, and let me point out, it's March the 8th, and I'm not saying that the first time these guys have been penciled into the lineup together in this order that this is going to be what it is, but you knew just from hearing the reports and reading the different articles and discussions and hearing the players kind of weigh in on it, you knew Josh Donaldson wanted to bat second. I think that's something he more or less lobbied for, you know, not so quietly, but respectfully, I would say, and the numbers also respectfully say, that it would be pretty nice to have Josh Donaldson batting second just based on what he did in Toronto. I can understand, though, that a lot of people might want to see him hit fourth, but I think he's kind of come out with the idea of, I don't want to necessarily feel like I'm just a home run hitter. And, Nick, now you've played the game. You know a lot more about the mindset of going up to the plate in different situations and in different roles and and with different things kind of being asked of you or different responsibilities for where you are in the order. The situation dictates a lot, too. But there are so many other things that go into it besides, okay, we need fast guy at the top. We need contact guy batting second. We need our best hitter batting third. And we need the biggest guy on the whole team to be batting fourth and club a bunch of home runs. I mean, baseball's come a long way since then. So I'm just really fascinated to see the mixing and the matching, especially if you can optimize the lineup against Southpaws in particular. Like you said, Ozzy Albies is a huge weapon in that case. But I still go back to, how do you get your best players the biggest chance and, and the most chances to impact the game? That's by giving them all the plate appearances that you can give them, in my opinion. And over the course of 162 games, you could be talking about somewhere between 30 and 50 extra plate appearances for Ronald Lacuna Jr. if he's batting leadoff as opposed to fourth. That's a number that I look at, and I feel you've really got to look at that and weigh what exactly you're doing, maybe against the bigger picture and some other guys that where they fit in, but... I guess if I have a question out of all this, and again, to go back to to kind of what I was saying to butter you up, you know a lot more about the situational hitting than I do. (laughs) Do you think this would affect a Josh Donaldson or with a younger guy like Ronald Acuna, do you think it affects the way that he's going to go about his business in not hitting at the top of the order and hitting in the middle of the order? And for Donaldson, maybe not batting second, but batting fourth. I mean, what do you think this would do to either one of their psyches? Well, first of all, I don't think that you have to have a strict – speed guy, contact guy, yeah. you're big power hitter number four anymore. And, and the reason I say that is because that's kind of not where the game's trending anymore. You're right. You want to get your best players the most at-bats, but you have to balance your lineup. And that's where the Acuna situation going to fourth is why the Braves are doing it. It's because they have to balance out the lineup somewhere along the way. If you had, if Marquecas was guaranteed to be 15 to 25 home runs somewhere in there and hit 300 and hit righties and lefties, then you wouldn't worry about that. Then you fill in on the back end. If Ozzy Albies was guaranteed to hit 275 with 20 home runs, then he slides in number six spot, then Ender seven mm-hmm. catcher, and then Swanson. Now you've got a, a LinkedIn lineup with Acuna at the top. There's some question marks, and you just don't know how people are going to swing the bat 
this year as opposed to last year. And I think that's why Snit is balancing the lineup like he is. As far as Acuna is concerned in the four spot, I'm a little worried. I think that he's pretty mature, and I think he's going to be able to handle it. But he's still young. And when you move into the four spot, you think about, oh, I've got to hit home runs. I've got to drive in runs. And that's one of the reasons Donaldson doesn't want to hit there. Donaldson wants to be free to do whatever he wants to do in Mm -hmm. the two spot. And that's why he's successful in the two spot. And when you move a young kid to the four spot and all of a sudden he has to feel like he has to drive in runs or he has to hit home runs, then you worry a little bit. But I think Acuna is a mature kid. I think he's going to be able to do it. If he wasn't capable of doing it or they didn't think he was capable of doing it, they wouldn't put him in that position because that could hurt the psyche of the player for sure. And when you look at the, the best players at the top, there's a reason that Francisco Lindor hits at the top of the lineup. There's yes. a reason Aaron Judge hits at the top of the lineup because they want those guys to have the most at-bats possible. If you look 10 years ago, Aaron Judge guaranteed would be a number four hitter. No doubt about it mm-hmm. because that's what the prototypical number four hitter was. It's not the same anymore. Marquez did a great job last year in the cleanup spot, and he wasn't the guy that's going to drive in 110 runs. He wasn't the guy that's going to hit 30 home runs. He did a fantastic job hitting behind Freddie Freeman, but he wasn't your prototypical number four hitter. Now you have to have production there because if your best hitter hits third, which still a lot of the best hitters do hit third, you've got to have somebody protect them. But I think the days of, of the speed, contact, best hitter, power hitter, all that stuff is kind of not a factor as much anymore. And we're seeing that, especially with the way these lineups are constructed. Lineup optimization, I think it was the kind of the, the key phrase. I don't know if anybody else called it that, but that's what I call it. I mean, I want to find <laughs> the best roles and the best opportunities for my best players to make a maximum impact on a nightly basis. But you, you brought up something interesting I, I do want to go back to there for just a moment, which is this is no longer last year, which is both a pro and a con as you make an argument or a case or a decision in the case of Brian Snitker, who is the guy that makes out these lineups. You can't necessarily look at last year and say, okay, last year's Enderenciarte is all Enderenciarte is. Now, on the flip side of that coin, you also can't just keep saying, well, a couple of years ago he had 200 hits, so if he can do that, it'll be fine. I think you just mm-hmm. kind of have to weigh both of those and say, look, we've seen what he's capable of at his best. We've seen him struggle a little bit. If he gets off to a hotter start or begins this season like he finished last season, which was much more indicative of, I think, more of the hitter that Enderenciarte can be, then he makes some sense at the top of the order. But, you know, once you start to get off into the weeds of some analytic stats that would say a lot to those of us who are on the outside looking in, but not as much to those who may be just sitting there on the on the average night just trying to balance the different hitters and the different aspects of the lineup in a more complete sense than just looking at the numbers, I think that that's where Brian Snitker has the difficult decisions because you're also managing these people on a nightly basis. And not only do you want to put them in a position where they can succeed, you also want to engender that sense of, does my manager believe in me as a guy who can make Mm -hmm. an impact on a given night? That's not going to show up necessarily on the stat sheet with a formula that guarantees 20% more production because somebody had some faith in me. But It is something that the human player, and I'm sure you can speak to this, does feel when you know that, hey, this guy's given me this opportunity. It's given me some confidence. I like the opportunity. I like the challenge. Now I'm going to go attack and obviously do the best that you can. I mean, it's there's no exact science to this. I guess what I'm saying is the mentality is also an important 
aspect of all of these decisions and for every single player that steps between the lines. Well, I can tell you this from experience. And if a manager believes in you and you know that, you're going to perform better. There's no doubt about it because you're not looking over your shoulder. When I was in New York, I was always looking over my shoulder. I was a utility guy, and I was probably the 25th man on the roster. I remember a game I was three for three, and I had two doubles. And we're playing Seattle, and J.J. Putz is closing. I feel great. I'm swinging the bat well against fastballs. He throws a hard fastball. All of a sudden, I get almost to the plate, and they call me back to the dugout. And I was sitting there going, man, if there's any time for me to hit in this situation, is now because yeah. I feel good and I'm confident. I know I'm going to get a hit. But then all of a sudden, you start looking over your shoulder. Is he going to pitch hit for me? If I don't do well today, am I going to play tomorrow? If all of a sudden I go 0 for 10 with four strikeouts, do I sit out and I lose my job? All that stuff plays a factor in. Like you said, everybody's human, and there's a human element mm-hmm. that goes into this. So I think Snicker is great at uh, letting the players know what his thoughts are and being honest with them and giving them a heads up. And I think that's all you can do as a manager. If you're going to play that game from time to time where you're bouncing guys around, you've got to be upfront and honest with the guys, and I think Snick can do that. So uh, it does definitely play a factor, and it's easy to sit on the sidelines and say, okay, well – they should be able to handle it. They're making millions of dollars. But these guys are human too. So you have to put that into perspective, and it's hard to do sometimes from a fan's perspective because you just expect greatness out of them all the time, and they can handle any situation. They're invincible, but they're not. They're humans, and I, I never forget David Ortiz in 2009. I think I had a month and a half into the season, I had more home runs than David Ortiz. Okay, so everybody's panicked about David Ortiz except for David Ortiz because he was David Ortiz. Now, did he have doubts in his mind? Probably, but he never showed it. And he, he eventually broke out. But if the manager didn't show that confidence in him, there's no way he would have broken out of that thing. So it's tough as a player sometimes, especially if you don't know if your manager or front office really truly believe in you. But I think Snit does a great job with that. So, you know, he's going to be upfront and honest, no matter how they play the whole situation. And, who plays where and who plays when. So they've got the right guy at the helm, that's for sure. A manager's job is oftentimes a thankless one. And when you make the lineup Mm -hmm. and you have the advantage, I'll call it that, of hindsight being on the outside and saying, well, that didn't work at all and he should have known it wasn't going to work. You know, you just end up framing (laughs) things a little bit differently than the guy that's got to do it each and every night. There's a level of accountability there, obviously, to be had, but there's also a level of responsibility to the 25 guys in that clubhouse to try to figure out ways to win and to try and figure out ways to use everybody. So all of that philosophy aside, I guess what I'm saying is it would be lovely to see Ronald Acuna Jr. bat leadoff as much as possible, given what he did last year. If he ends up in a different spot and that works out, though, you know, that's for the betterment of the team. I'm sure that Ronald Acuna will be okay with that. But it's all going to depend on performance, and these guys are going to have to go out and prove that that faith was, you know, well-placed when it comes to that kind of thing. And, of course, It's a long 162-game season. A lot of things can happen. So the March 8th spring training lineup may not necessarily be indicative of what we're going to be seeing on April the 8th, May the 8th, and so on and so forth. You know, I like those eights. So be that as it may. Yes, but the 28th, I think, is pretty close. Very much. I think that this is a a very high (laughs) likelihood. But then again, I would not be surprised to see Acuna at the top of the order come the 28th either. But it all just kind of comes down to the number of different factors we've all laid out and what Brian Snitker and 
Alex Anthopoulos and anybody else that has some creative input on this really thinks is best for the team. And I'm sure they'll make those decisions as it goes. And Anthopoulos seems to be deferring to let Brian Snitker make those decisions. So we'll all find out. No spoilers. Still got about no, just under three weeks now until opening day, which is quite the little countdown we've got going now, which is kind of exciting. That's the first time I've really thought about that out loud, that you know we're well less than a month and actually less than three weeks away from the Braves opening up the 2019 season. Some injury updates for guys hoping to open up the season without ending up on the injury list, mind you, not the disabled list. Mike Fultonevich may not be ready for opening day, but according to MLB.com's Mark Bowman, it sounds like he could be ready opening week and make a start, even if he can't make that opening day post. I know that might be a little bit disappointing for him and for Braves fans as well, but having Mike Fultonevich in rotation as soon as possible in the season, obviously the major goal. No real reason to rush all of that. The Braves have plenty of pitchers that are capable of being in that rotation. And, you know, there is one opening day. I get it. But I think the overall health of Mike Fultonevich really trumps that whole thing. So this is unfortunate setback. He hasn't been thrown off a mound yet. Obviously hasn't appeared in another game. So it doesn't look like he's going to be ready to take the ball in less than three weeks. Also, A.J. Minter and Darren O'Day are both battling some arm ailments right now, not believed to be too serious. It's a forearm for O'Day. And for A.J. Minter, of course, that seatbelt, I guess, was the issue. He had a little fender bender and the shoulders a little bit sore, and that's kind of something that he felt like he pitched through in the regular season. But the Braves, again, are taking the ultra-cautious approach with all these guys. Uh, Luis Gohara has been dealing with his shoulder deal. He was optioned out, though, over to the minor league side among the 10 guys that were cut in spring training camp, which we can talk about in just a moment. And, of course, we're still waiting on Mike Soroka to get on the mound and pitch in some game action. Any of those things stand out to you, or do you think that just this cautious approach is kind of the way to go and that the Braves are playing this the best way that they can? I think they're playing it the only way they can. And you can't that afford too. to push guys, and that's why you have to have depth. I know there are a ton of people out there that complain about depth signings and teams signing guys that maybe their ceiling is a number five starter. Oh, like Anibal Sanchez? Depth. Yep. <laughs> you, you have to have extra arms. You have to have extra bodies. And you don't know how everybody's going to come out of spring training. For goodness sakes, we didn't know how everybody was going to come into spring training. And yeah. you go into spring training, you've got shoulder soreness everywhere. You've got O'Day with the forearm. Uh, and look at Luis Gohart. He hasn't even had a chance to pitch. He came in expecting to maybe be a part of the open day roster, at least make a big-time impression and uh, make an adjustment from last year and get better. And he hasn't even had a chance to do anything. So you've got to prepare for that. And I think the Braves have done that with all their pitching prospects. They have plenty of guys that can pick up the slack. But to me, Fulton Evans is probably the most important thing. And I, I mentioned this last week that not that everybody behind Fulton Evans is bad because I think they're really good. But Fulty is, to me, a step above all the other guys in that rotation. Yeah. So having him out of the rotation for an extended period of time would be a big blow. So you've got to get him healthy. You have to do whatever it takes, however long it takes early on, as far as making sure he's ready to go before he goes out and blows out. Because you know when he steps on that mound, he's going to be throwing 96, 97 miles an hour. He's not going to go up there throwing 90 miles an hour just trying to get his work in. And they know that. They have to prepare for that. And um, you want to make sure he's ready to go. And if he's ready the first week, great. If he's ready the second week, that's fine too. Uh, but don't push him for opening day, and, and the Braves aren't going to. They showed us exactly who they are, 
from a training staff perspective with Josh Donaldson. They know how important the entire season is, and they understand that just because you're there on opening day doesn't mean that it's going to last the entire season. Yeah. So uh, they're doing the right stuff as far as uh, from a medical perspective, trying to keep these guys on the field throughout the entire season. And again, it is a long 162-game marathon to get through. And to Nick's point, you know, a lot of things can happen between opening day and obviously the final day of the season and whatever playoff aspirations you have that are decided in between those two dates. You're going to have to have a lot of guys step up and contribute. And I think the pitching staff is one of the big places that you're going to see that because, as you mentioned, Luis Gohara has not gotten a pitch in a game yet. He has been able to throw on the side. It is encouraging. He is nearing, I think, some game activity, which will probably come on the minor league side mostly, but I'm sure that you know they'll call guys over for extra bodies here and there. Uh, throughout the rest of spring, obviously, that not much changes just because they trimmed down the roster, which, again, uh, 10 players were cut on Friday, 48 players in big league camp now, some of the names that were optioned out, Luis Gohara, Patrick Weigel, who's an absolutely great story in terms of Patrick really turning himself into one of the Braves' top pitching prospects, then going down with Tommy John, kind of having to watch all of his friends get these opportunities. David O'Brien of The Athletic wrote a great piece on Weigel. I encourage you to obviously subscribe to The Athletic for that and other stories and just that inside Braves coverage. But when it comes to writing those kind of biopic pieces and really taking a good dive into somebody's season of life that they're in, perhaps in the case of Weigel, uh, Dave did a great job of, of jumping in and, and really getting a lot out of that. So, again, I recommend that if you don't already subscribe. Oscar uh, and Noah was also optioned out Ian Anderson, Joey Wentz, Kyle Muller, William Contreras, and Jonathan Morales, as well as Grayson Janista, Janista rather, and Drew Waters, all reassigned to minor league camp. It was Weigel, Enoa, and Gohara, though, all optioned to Gwinnett. So a few moves that were made. Nothing really surprising amongst that group. I think it was just good to see the Andersons, Wences, and Mullers get some opportunity, especially Kyle Muller. I think he really impressed. I'm excited about William Contreras. I mean, we don't have to turn this into prospect chat or whatnot, but these were all guys that I think benefited a lot from their first big league camp. Nick, I'll just ask you to impressions or what do you remember a lot about your first big league camp and what it did for you as a young player? Well, I was lucky because I probably wasn't ready uh, for my first big league camp because um, I was coming out of a ball going to double a and I was coming off ACL surgery. So I, I was rehabbing and that experience to me was probably the best experience I could have had just going in there and soaking everything up. I didn't get to play in a game. I was hurt the whole time, so I started the season on the disabled list. Uh, but being able to be around those guys, see how they uh, went about their business and um, who they were as people, and uh, I think that was the probably the best part about my first big league spring training. Um, and then the next year, I felt like I was more ready to go. Uh, I wasn't intimidated. I wasn't uh, – afraid that I didn't belong. And I think that's one of the big things you're going over and you see all these guys on TV and you see all the superstars and you say, do I really belong in, in the big leagues? Well, when you get that opportunity um, and you perform just like a Kyle Muller, he knows he's capable of pitching in the big leagues now. Yep. Um, and that's the cool part about it. Having the opportunity, he got four appearances through four and two thirds innings. And for those four appearances were probably some of the biggest appearances he's ever made in his life, even though they didn't mean anything as far as stats are concerned. But he left a great impression. And I, I know the Braves are not going to be afraid to call a Kyle Muller up. Uh, and that's what you, you go for going into spring training. You just want to impress people 
and, and want to leave a good taste in their mouth. And sometimes you you end up doing a little bit too much. You struggle, and then you you second guess the fact is, what could I have done differently? Um, do I really belong there, or should I just be in in AAA the entire year? Or do I expect to get called up? All these things go through your head. So um, these guys, especially now, I think it's a little bit different uh, as far as the young guys being more mature. And I, I say that a lot, but these guys are so much more mature than all the guys that I played with when I was 21, 22 years old. You didn't see many 21-year-olds playing in the big leagues or even being ready to play in the big leagues right. uh, when I was 21. So the game's changed dramatically. The confidence of these young kids is through the roof, and you get the experience. You you feel like you belong from the get-go, and uh, sometimes it humbles you. and uh, Well, most of the time it humbles you, sure. uh, and you hope you can make that adjustment. The big leagues is hard. Baseball is hard. Uh, but when you look at from a mental perspective, and we talked about this with the manager showing confidence in you and believing in you, and you end up performing better. I went through that multiple times in my career. And if a manager believed in me, I played better. And even if I didn't play every day, I performed up to the level I probably should have performed at. When they didn't believe in me, then it was a struggle. You're always looking over your shoulder. But these kids go in and believe in themselves from the get-go. Um, and, and if you don't believe in yourself, you don't think that you're good enough to be there, you're probably not going to succeed. And I just love the attitudes of these young kids. I mean, they're cocky, they're confident, but that's a good thing. I know there are a lot of people who don't like Bryce Harper, never liked Bryce Harper. I saw Bryce Harper play in junior college and when he should have been in high school. That guy was one of the most confident, cocky guys I ever saw, but <laughs> really? at the same time, he knew how good he was. And he knew that he was better than everybody on the field. And that's the that's the way you have to think about it. So. Uh, it's fun watching these young guys perform um, in spring training, even though a lot of them didn't get a lot of at-bats. But just like Drew Waters, I, I think that he's confident uh, that he can late in the season if they needed something mm -hmm. uh, from him, he could come up and do well. And that's all you're asking for with these young guys going into spring training. Yeah, it's good to give the opportunities. And, of course, there were a lot of different players in Braves camp. I mean, over 60 guys when it opened up. And many of them you knew weren't going to crack the 25-man roster, but some invaluable opportunity that was given to these young kids to come in and just get that kind of experience and also the day-to-day -day, you know getting to the ballpark being around the big league guys going through all of those things playing alongside players who were already at the level you aspire to get to a lot of valuable experience to be had in that particular case one guy who's just happy to be back on the field and get all the experience he can out there as he gets ready for opening day is Dansby Swanson back in action after that brief setback with the left wrist he played in his second game on Friday night as the Braves were able to grab a walk-off win over the Phillies under the lights at Disney. Dansby had a good first game, uh, hit the ball hard a couple of times, picked up a base hit, a couple of strikeouts in Friday night's game. Not really too much to report on that. It's spring training. I'm not diving into the numbers looking at too much other than you don't want to pile up so many strikeouts that it starts to alarm you. But I think with Dansby, as long as that wrist is healthy, he's got the strength there and he gets these reps over the next two and a half, three weeks, he's going to be ready to do whatever the Braves need him to do on a night-in, night-out basis come opening day, and I think that makes the club a lot better because defensively speaking, I think he gives them the best shortstop that they're going to have among the guys they've got rostered right now, regardless of what decisions you want to make about the lineup and who's going to be in there and what Johan Camargo's role is going to be because that's another thing that kind of goes into this when you look at the way the lineup was made out. And again, it's one night in spring training. 
However, <laughs> you're going to have to figure out where this guy is going to hit. So keeping guys fresh and giving Johan the opportunity to get his at-bats in as well are all going to be things that Brian Snitker is juggling. But to go back to the cart that is now in front of the horse, Dansby healthy, ready to go. I think that that's just a, a good thing to see, and hopefully it stays that way throughout the course of the 2019 season. Well, when you look at his season last year and you find out at the end of the year that he battled that wrist injury throughout most of the entire year, and I go back watching him throughout the year and saying, ah, well, he's struggling doing this, struggling with that. Well, we didn't know that his wrist was hurt the entire season, and now he's healthy and he's ready to go, and he's made some adjustments too. If you were able to watch him swing at all, um, I didn't see the, the latest two at-bats, but I saw the, the first two. And he's made an adjustment with his hands. He's trying to be more comfortable, more relaxed. He's down in his legs a little bit more, which I think is important for him. A lot of times he has trouble uh, getting into his legs and getting on plane of the baseball on a consistent basis. So he ends up chopping down at the ball a little bit too steep. So he a lot of times he'll barrel the ball up, it'll hit it in the ground. And in the big leagues, usually a ball on the ground is an out. Um, he's trying to make these adjustments, and I felt like his approach was a little bit better. Uh, the first two at-bats of the, of the spring, I felt like he was a little bit looser, um, and he's got some pop. He's got some good skills, and I think that he's capable of way more uh, than than what he's shown so far in his young big league career. But um, just to see him making some adjustments and trying to to better himself and uh, I think that's going to go a long way. He's capable of being a really good player, and we saw that defensively, that improvement from the previous year in 2017 to last year. His defense improved a lot. I think his offense is capable of improving that dramatically uh, from 2018 to 2019. We'll see if he can do it or not. It's, it's a long season. It's hard to do, but I think he's capable of improving dramatically uh, from the offensive standpoint. So, We'll see what happens with him. Uh, I think they're putting him in a good spot in the number eight hole in the order. I think he's he's capable of handling that spot in front of the pitcher. And the pressure should be off. Josh Donaldson's here. Brian McCann's here. Ozzy Albies has to back up a good year. Acuna's got to back up a good year. So the pressure's off Dansby. You just want him to be healthy and in that lineup every day. And that obviously is the goal for him. And a healthy wrist is going to be a big part of a healthy season for him. And I guess just looking overall, when it comes to the progression of Dansby Swanson from the expectations of being a number one pick to being traded to your hometown team, to coming up and doing well in a, in a cameo late in the season in 2016, to all the struggles of 2017, to you know, battling through an injury in 2018. But as you pointed out, showing some strides, this is no longer just development years for him because he didn't spend a lot of time in the minors, but this kind of seems like or feels like the season where he needs to put a lot of things together, and I'm sure nobody wants to do it more than Dansby Swanson as well. So that's what's going on in Braves camp, and the Braves, of course, will be in action throughout the weekend, but their game on Friday night, just in case you're curious, a couple of other standouts, just if you're looking at box scores, which is always fun to do. Max Freed, another good appearance for him, three and two-thirds innings, one run, it came on a solo homer, no walks and four strikeouts for him. I think Max has pretty much got himself a – inside track on one of the spots on that 25-man roster, whether he's out of the bullpen or at the back end of the rotation in tandem with some of the other arms, including Kyle Wright, who's a guy that uh, we've talked about him a good bit, but I don't think he gets talked about enough overall. 
Braves have got themselves some good arms, even with Mike Soroka, Luis Gohara, and guys like that battling some arm ailments. That's the good thing about having the depth that Atlanta has. There's a lot of opportunity, though, for these guys to step up and show what they can do. But that's what's going on with the Atlanta Braves. Elsewhere around baseball, Nick, some very interesting things that were happening. Uh, Mike Trout, who we happen to know might be the best player in baseball in the last, I don't know, 50 years, he's going to make some serious money <laughs> when he hits free agency. So his resume is already stacked, and I'm sure teams will be lining up to talk to him about having his services for about a decade or so for their baseball team. Bryce Harper, meanwhile, just got himself paid for 13 years and over $300 million, but he also got in a little bit of hot water for publicly stating in an interview that he'll be campaigning hard for Mike Trout to come to Philly. It seems a little bit ridiculous, but probably not the best way to go about it. I think a phone call or a text message, since these two were already talking anyway, that might have been the route to take. Maybe don't go public on uh, uh, somebody that plays for a completely different team for more than two calendar years to go. That's interesting, and I can't fault him for being excited. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I guess you have to think about it when you're when you're that high profile of a player that you can't really do that. For me, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Yeah, uh, he did go out on Instagram and write Le'Veon Bell to start trying to recruit. <laughs> so he's he's a known recruiter, mm-hmm. uh, but he wants to he wants to win and he wants the best players there. Uh, whether Mike Trout can go there or not. That's another story. Uh, can you have two guys with those massive contracts on the same team? I don't even know if that's possible or not. So it's pretty funny, but I know Bryce Harper's excited. He's ready to get things going out in Philly, and he wants the best players there. Mike Trout's still a couple years away, uh, but who wouldn't want Mike Trout on their team? So it's interesting story, but I don't, I don't think there's a whole lot to it. I don't think he should be punished for it. I don't think that Philly should be punished. Uh, for tampering or anything like that. No, and I don't think that the Phillies had a directive to have Bryce Harper out there putting anything, whether it's subliminal messages or otherwise, out there to Mike Trout in a public forum. But, you know, that aside, it was just a little bit amusing to hear that the uh, the Angels, I guess, weren't too happy about that. And I'm sure that all parties involved <laughs> can learn a little bit from it and move on and maybe not do this for the next couple of years. But just kind of a little interesting <laughs> thing, I thought. Um, they need to tell Mike Trout to stop going to Philadelphia Eagles games then. Well, that's true. I mean, this is a guy that's a known Philadelphia sports fan, so he was already kind of trending in that direction. So, yeah, maybe you can't blame Bryce Harper <laughs> at the end of it. How about all, how about all that? That every time he goes to a football game, he gets a football. Every time, because really? they want Mike Trout in Philly. That's why. Well, I don't blame him whatsoever. But if you're able to lure that guy to Philly with a football and not with about three hundred and fifty million dollars, <laughs> then you've really pulled something off right there. So. Um, <laughs> Major League Baseball and the Atlantic League of Professional Baseball, which is an independent league, announced on Friday that they're going to be experimenting with some new rules and equipment and things in the 2019 season. The list of these rules, Nick, as a not only a former professional baseball player, but somebody who, like me, has spent your entire life watching baseball pretty much a certain way without any real drastic changes being made on the field itself, well... We've been talking about technology for a long time. Home plate umpire are going to be assisted on the balls and strikes by the TrackMan radar tracking system. That really leads everything. And we'll get to some of these other ones, but this has been something that's been, I think, maybe not hotly debated, but certainly been discussed intensely when it comes to some of the erratic strike zones that we'll see and the fact that baseball has decided to overlay the strike zone digitally onto the screen on pretty much every game broadcast. That's a standard technology. 
and the fact that it differs wildly from sometimes game to game and umpire to umpire. What do you think of all this? Do you think that the home plate umpire needs this help? Do you think that baseball should seriously consider this? Do you think it's time to just adopt this technology and kind of do take a page out of what tennis is doing and things of that nature? Where do you weigh in on robo-umps? It's tough. I don't really like it. I understand that a lot of people want it because you want to get all the calls right, but I kind of like the human element of the game. And I think there should be some sort of replay. I think they have to do a better job of making replay quicker. Yeah. And I think that's a big problem with baseball. But I think it's necessary uh, at certain times. The strike zone situation is interesting because nobody knows exactly how it's going to work yet. It is said the umpire will be assisted by a radar system, uh, which is track man. Does the umpire get a signal or does he wear an earpiece or saying that he got the call wrong or he, is it a delayed strike or ball call? I don't know. If you want to test it out, this is a good testing ground. I don't think it's going to play in, in big league baseball. I don't think, and I could be wrong with that. I, I mean, I, it could happen at some point, but I don't know if the players really want this to happen or not. The human element to me is one of the things that makes the game great. And how many times are you going to see a manager run out there and argue balls and strikes? That's kind of fun for a fan. It's pretty much um, gone it's kind now. Of fun to see. Yeah, it's going to be gone. It's kind of fun to see that as a player to see your manager get super excited or, or super frustrated with what's going on, and he's going out there and yelling and supporting his team. Uh, Bobby Cox was the best at getting thrown out for people thinking uh, that there were strikes and there were balls. <laughs> he made Bobby Cox, or the players made Bobby Cox, uh, get ejected numerous times. You could tell Bobby, yeah, that was a great pitch, and he would go argue, and it could be two feet off the plate. You can't do that now because, or at least in the Atlantic League, with a radar system basically calling balls and strikes because it is what it is. What are you going to do, argue with TrackMan? Well, Um, in theory, but also, I mean, I guess it's been for the last however long that, you know, arguing balls and strikes is now an automatic ejection anyway. So why are you going to do it other than to make a point? Yeah, no, everybody does. I I guess it's just what level of tolerance the home plate umpire has for the crowing that's going to come out of the dugout. Yeah, I mean, well, you know they have rabbit ears for the most part of anyway. Course. So it's going to do you absolutely no good if you have a track man. And I think we forget how important the manager's passion and his desire to back up his players and show his players that he believes in them. We forget how important that is to the game. And when you start taking that stuff away, what's the manager going to end up doing? He's just going to be there relaying messages, and that's it. You're going to see a guy trying to manage some egos, but he's going to be the liaison between the front office telling him what to do and the umpires telling him what's right and what's wrong. I mean, yeah. I don't know. It's it's kind of frustrating to see it. Um, you know eventually it's probably going to happen. I hope it doesn't happen soon. To me, it just takes a little bit of fun away from the game. In front, the, the human element, I think, is still a big part of the game, and you lose that when you – have a, a system like TrackMan calling balls and strikes. Yeah, it's something that definitely takes the human element out of play there. And and I know that there's an argument to be made for the human element and against the human element, depending on how egregious the call was, I guess. But I don't really have much of a problem, I should say, with balls and strikes being automated. I, I don't think that you really lose a lot there in the general sense. But you did just point out a lot of different byproducts that you have just from having that human element in the game 
the with the manager and all of the different reactions and interactions that can be had just based on that. How many times has Bobby Cox been thrown out of a game and it ignited his team? Uh, probably quite you know, a few. Because of balls and strikes. Like there's just so much more to it than just getting the call right. Yeah. And I don't want I want all the calls right. Don't don't get me wrong. I want them all right. But there I don't know. I I just loved seeing the the passion and desire to win from the manager and, and backing his team up. And you don't see that, especially if you get a radar system calling balls and strikes. You're not going to see that at all as far as balls and strikes are concerned. Well, some of the other things that are going on here in terms of just changes that Major League Baseball and the Atlantic League are going to be looking into and testing out, no mound visits permitted by players or coaches other than pitching changes and medical issues. I find that one a bit odd. I've never really had a problem with mound visits. I know, what, a couple of years ago or a few years ago in the playoffs, I forget who was doing it a lot. And, yeah, maybe that particular night it was a little bit egregious, but I've never really had much of a problem with that. Then you've got the whole thing we talked about a little bit. Pitchers must face a minimum of three batters or reach the end of an inning before they exit the game unless that pitcher is injured. Those are a couple of things that, I don't know, I I continue to look at it and think, I don't know that this is really going to make much of a difference in either the pace of play or the length of game, but that's just my opinion. The oddball ones start with increasing the size of first, second, and third base from 15 inches square to 18 (laughs) inches square. Nick, I'm sure that you have an opinion on that. That's kind of interesting. I'd like to see it in person. Three inches is not a big deal, but what are we doing? Yeah. Why are we why are we messing with the bases? Uh-huh. These are professionals. If you don't know how to touch the right side of the base, you don't know how to stand on first base if you're a first baseman and not get your foot stepped on, you shouldn't be there. So I don't understand that. I don't make I, that makes no sense to me. The biggest issue that I have with all this stuff, and I, I we haven't touched it yet, is two feet back the yeah, rubber's being moved. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna close with that one. That one's we're, we're going to get that, that went, way that, off in the weeds. Yeah, I know I'm jumping the gun there, but like when I'm looking through this list, I'm, I'm sitting there going, okay, well, the bases is weird. That's that's just weird. The no mound visits, I think, is something that, especially from players, we didn't really deal with last year when they put the, the minimum in mound visits per game. You didn't see a lot of players going out and talking to the pitchers. Right. Uh, you used to see that a lot more often, so I don't think that's a big issue. I think – um, they could cut back maybe a, a couple more mound visits in the big leagues, but I don't think you're going to ever see that where nobody can go to the mound unless you're making a pitching change. I, I just don't see that happening, but the base situation is just weird to me. Yeah, I, I don't see any reason why people are clamoring for you know no communication because sometimes a mound visit is like 10 seconds, you know, 15 seconds yeah, maybe. I mean, there are guys that have stepped off, as we talked about last week on the show, you go through the signs a bunch of times, people step out, people step off, then do we need a pitch clock, all those kinds of things. There's a lot of different elements in this, and I think it may be just overcooking this just a bit to make wholesale and drastic changes. And I think you hit the nail on the head by saying a lot of these things are never going to see the light of day when it comes to actual Major League Baseball. may not even be seen in affiliated minor league ball either. Changing the size of the bases certainly would go on that list for me. Uh, the shift is something that's always talked about, requiring two infielders to be on each side of second base when a pitch is released. If not, then the ball will be ruled dead. The umpire will call a ball on the hitter. Uh, time between innings, pitching changes, going down by 20 seconds from just over two minutes to a buck 45. And then the coup de gras, the one that you brought up a little bit earlier, distance from the pitching rubber to home plate, pushing it 
two feet back. So 24 inches <laughs> further back. So 62 feet, six inches. Second half of the season only with no change to the actual height of the mound or the slope of the mound. Again, I just don't understand what the point of that is. I don't think that – I just want to know. I would love to be a fly on the wall for who was sitting in the brainstorming meeting to come up with and be like, what if we move the mound back? You know, it's been this way for over a century and a half, but what if there's, we move the mound no way, back? There's no way somebody actually play the game would, would recommend that. No, and it's, it's ridiculous that it's ever got out of a brainstorming meeting onto a sheet of paper that was released by Major League Baseball and that this is something that's being thought about or presented as we've been thinking and this is what we've thought of. I just, I don't get it. I just don't see this as something that anybody was asking for at all. You know what's weird is that's coming from Major League Baseball. Major right. League Baseball signed off on this. Who in the world, besides, I guess Rob Manford did it. He wants to make all these drastic changes with baseball, but that is ridiculous. Yeah, I, I get it that you want more action and more contact and all this stuff and pitchers are throwing harder, but that's just a time that's that hitters have to adjust. That's if you look at what's going on too. And I read an article the other day, I can't remember where it was. And I think it was the athletic. One of the big issues with hitters not putting the ball in play are foul balls. And it's just because this, I think the stuff is so good. Guys are fouling more balls off, right? Uh, they just have trouble getting the barrel to it. But moving the mound back two feet, that affects all kinds of people. That, to me, is just absurd. But if you're looking for a guy out of independent ball who has a chance to play affiliated ball again, how does this affect them? I mean, does it affect the, the hitter? Does it affect the pitcher? Two feet doesn't seem like a whole lot. But when you're looking at guys throwing 95, that's a big difference. Just say, for instance, you gain two feet of extension on your fastball. The fastball, I, I don't know, remember the exact numbers, but it jumped from like 95 to like 98. That's one of the reasons Araldus Chapman, he was throwing really hard, but also at the same time, it looked even harder. And when you're talking about two feet from a pitcher standpoint or a hitter standpoint, that's a big difference. I just It just baffles me that that came out of Major League Baseball's mouth and they said, okay, let's, that's a good idea. <laughs> I don't know whoever thought that was a good idea. Yeah, I, I just wouldn't want somebody to see my name on that as an idea that came from my department in order to either improve the game or to explore things that could potentially be brought in in the name of improving the game. That's just not the kind of stuff that I'd want to be concentrating on. But these are the things that Major League Baseball has thrown out there. Again, this is being tested in the independent Atlantic League, and we'll find out exactly how some of these things play out. And in particular, that pitching mound, two feet further back for the rubber, so 62 feet, six inches will be the new distance. I just don't foresee that as playing out particularly well. But then again, it may have no effect whatsoever, and that may be what they want to find out. But either way, that's not something I expect to see in Major League Baseball at any point. So You're still looking at guys that are trying to get to the, the, no, I get to get to the affiliated ball, right? and you're messing with them. Right. I don't know. I don't know. I don't like it. <laughs> no, I, I don't love that aspect either. Again, we talked a lot about the human element on this episode, and that's another thing that it, it is affecting some of those guys. Right? Does that mean that they're going straight to Cooperstown if they get signed? Well, no, probably not. But does it mean that they might have the opportunity to further their career and find some success in the big leagues? Yeah, that's what all these guys are vying for. So some of these things, I, I just don't see the point. But again, uh, as been said about the pitcher's mound and also about the bases and some of the other little things, Maybe it's just overcooking things, just trying to find solutions for a problem that you realize that you want to 
have the best quality product that you can. You also realize that, you know, time is not always on your side when it comes to having too much time being taken up by different parts of the game, but I'm just not sure what exactly the fixes are. I just don't look at this list and think that we've found the answer to a lot of things outside of perhaps the robo-ump. It's weird that the robo-ump may be the least unexpected thing on the entire list. So uh, technology, that's uh, how it works. And technology also will keep you connected to From the Diamond, especially if you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Make sure you do that. Leave us a review and a rating. We appreciate those. On Twitter, you can find us at from the diamond underscore at Grant McCauley and at Nick Green 20. You can follow all three of those. You can send us your questions. We'll probably uh, dive into some fan questions, especially as the Braves start trimming down the spring training roster and getting closer to that 25. That'll be something that we'll be jumping into a lot. So if you do have a particular question that could be used on an upcoming episode of from the diamond, Twitter is a great place to send that question at from the diamond underscore. And we'll try to answer as many of those as we can throughout each and every week and each and every episode. So Nick, Talked about a lot of stuff. Finally got to talk about Josh Donaldson playing in a Major League Baseball game. That's a lot of fun. Hopefully he'll be playing in quite a few of those for the remainder of spring training. And, of course, when the Braves open up the regular season, which is now less than three weeks away, our countdown is officially on, and there's a lot of excitement to be had when it comes to seeing the Braves try to defend the National League East crown that they won last year, and they're going to have plenty of competition to do it, and we're going to be here to talk all about it. Well, I know one thing. It's going to be a – a fun season. Braves have to get healthy for sure, but seeing Josh Donaldson on the field makes me happy. Brian McCann's swinging the bat well so far this spring. I don't know. It's going to be a fun season. We don't know how it's going to turn out, but I'm sure I'm excited. And it'll be here before we know it as the Braves are fast approaching opening day, but we've got quite a few episodes to really break everything down, discuss everything, and of course, check the pulse of what's happening around Major League Baseball as well. We'll do it all for you here each and every week from the Diamond. And with that being said, Nick, we will reconvene this coming Friday for another exciting episode and some more baseball talk. I look forward to it. Absolutely. All right. For Nick Green, I'm Grant McCauley. This has been From the Diamond, and we will catch you next week. So long, everyone.